Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. As I've made several trips through Malachi, it seems to me that, that the book of Malachi is what you get when God keeps his promise to be the kind of friend we all say we want. We all say that we want those friends who will tell us the truth, even if it's hard to hear, even if we don't want to hear it. And when those friends say that to us, we, uh, oh, we offer a collective ouch because hard truth. But because we know people love us, um, we hang in there with them, and we start to process the kind of change that we needed to process. And afterwards, we tell our friends, thank you for being a true friend to me. And in the book of Malachi, we have God keeping his promise to be that kind of a friend. And it's been a handful of ouches so far. I can't believe it. This is week six in, in our way, um, in, in our series working through this book. And we come to what I think is the hardest of all of the tough love messages that God brings to us through the prophet Malachi. Today and next week, we're going to talk about marriage and divorce in the people of God. Now, I know that as soon as I say marriage, there are some people who are saying the inner ouch, because marriage, despite all of its romantic promises, has not produced a uh, romantic ideal in your life. Marriage has been your hardest struggle. For some, your, your most dramatic and difficult pain. When I say divorce, the ouch goes deeper still because some found marriage to be too painful to keep on going. And so divorce was the route that was taken only to find out that divorce is more painful yet in many situations. When you put on top of that, the church's uh, tendency down through time to pick certain sins, weaknesses, faults, and failures and hold them up as the worst ones in the catalog. Anytime we mention the word divorce in the church, and particularly in our arm of the faith, when you say the word divorce, there's an awful lot of people who won't look up. They won't make eye contact with anybody else in the room. They wouldn't make eye contact with God himself, even looking for comfort, because it's their life's greatest pain, their life's greatest shame. They feel like their life's greatest failure. And there's some who think they're never going to recover from what they decided or what their partner decided. My family was uh, a divorced family. I, I started out like, like I wanted to, I guess, with a mom and dad at home with me. And the day after I turned three, dad left for the, for the last time. And uh, my family suddenly got a new script being written for us with all kinds of, of economic hardships and all kinds of, of emotional pain and suffering. Um, because of the way that my dad lived his life in the grips of addiction, it put us kids in harm's way. Many times. And as I review the story, I can see the presence of a loving God who did protect me, not from everything, 
who helped me and who was with me all the way. Here I sit 45 years later after my, my parents' marriage ended. Obviously, you can tell by my halting speech today that I still feel it very deeply. There are some effects from it that will never go away. They have shaped me into the man that I am. There's a story, and we're not going to read it today. Uh, it's found in the Bible's first book, the book of Genesis. We've talked about Joseph before. He was a man whose family didn't turn out at all like he thought either. There was betrayal, there was hurt. And when it had all played out decades later, the family sat in one room together and there was a bunch of sorrow and there was a bunch of shame and there was a bunch of apologizing and a bunch of begging. And then there was one great proclamation. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. And so while I sit here with bumps and bruises, scars, uh, some of which won't go away, I can testify to you today that God has used to shape me and to help me connect with other people who hurt in similar ways so that I can say, I wouldn't, I wouldn't undo it at this point. Too much good. Too much good has come to me and to my family because of how God took care of us through the most difficult, painful thing in our lives. Now listen, you don't have to get to the same place, okay? You don't have to get to the same place. You can, you can live in the place where you say, I don't do it in a second if I could. Just look with me over your shoulder because there's a God who's um, not behind you, right beside you. You'll get halfway through that look over your shoulder and you'll see that there's a God who's with you in the middle of the hurt even today. As we read from Malachi chapter 2 today, we're going to be reading some, some harsh language about this most sensitive of subjects. We're going to read the Old Testament prophet. And if you remember where, Al, where Malachi sits in the, in the list of the books of the Bible, it's, it's last in the Old Testament. You may have been told that there's a, there's a gap between the end of the Old Testament and the, and the beginning of the New Testament. There is a gap of about 400 years. And so Malachi sits somewhere near the end of the Old Testament story, right up against the very end of the Old Testament story. And you can see, if you've been following this book with us, that God, over centuries and centuries and centuries and centuries of keeping his promise to his people, of being faithful to them, of allowing them grace and mercy and some wandering, and, and constantly then calling them back, calling them back, forgiving them of their sins, giving them a new start, a second, a third, a 200th, a 300th, there finally came a point where he said to them, it's time for us to sit down and talk about the kind of relationship that we have. And it is not at all like the one that we promised to each other. Now, what are we going to do about it? And in this letter as such, that comes through the mouth of this strange Old Testament prophet, we get a chance to see how raw the heart of God was 
after being taken advantage of by the, 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 the bride that he loved for, you know, 1,500 years. God took some knocks in all of this, and, and in this, this telling, it all came pouring out. Let me ask you something kind of strange. Can you allow God some grace today? Just pour it out, get it off his chest, and then see if maybe later we can work our way through the painful things that God says. My promise to you today and next week is that we won't stop with the words of Malachi. Because Malachi, while it is the end of the Old Testament, he is not the end of the Bible. The Bible really gets wrapped up about 400 years later when Jesus comes and lives out the final word of God toward humanity, which is, I love, forgive, and offer grace to everyone. See, Malachi is full of truth, hard truth. John testified about his friend Jesus. Jesus came full of grace and truth. Listen, you hungry for truth? Yeah? Well, if you hear the truth like I do, you're going to need some grace to swallow it. And Jesus came full of grace and truth. Hey, church, if we're going to be like Jesus, we can't be people who are always talking about truth, 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 and using it against people. We're going to be like Jesus. We have to be people who are full of grace and truth. You with me? Okay. Let's read from Malachi chapter 2. We're going to begin reading uh, with verse 10. Would you stand with me, please, in honor of the reading of God's word? We need your help today, Lord. We're admittedly going to squirm a little bit. We have a bunch of married folks and a bunch of divorced folks and a bunch of folks who are afraid of both of those things who are gathered with us here and who are watching via the live stream. We're just going to need your help to bear up under what we read today. But know that we are listening. Amen. Malachi writes, Have we not all one Father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our fathers by breaking faith with one another? Judah has broken faith. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings offerings to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altar with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask why? It's because the Lord is acting as the witness between you and the wife of your youth because you've broken faith with her. Though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant, Has not the Lord made them one? 
in flesh and spirit, they are his. And why one? Because he was seeking godly offspring. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith with the wife of your youth. I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. And I hate a man's covering himself with violence as well as with his garment, says the Lord Almighty. So guard yourself in your spirit and do not break faith. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The way that I've decided to, to handle the, the text is that today we're going to talk about divorce. Next week we're going to talk about marriage. And in each of these instances, I want to make sure that, that we are all abundantly clear of this one truth. In other words, if this is the only thing that you learn over the next two weeks, if you're only going to learn one thing, let this be it. If, you can, if, if you're going to write one note, if, if you're going to post one thing on your social media, let it be this. God hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. You should say amen to that. And you should say it like you mean it. I'm going to say it to you again, and I, I want to hear the church respond as an affirmation of, of the faith and, and of the love of God. God hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. Amen. amen. And in case you don't know what the word hate means, let me give you the Cliff Purcell working man's translation. It means he doesn't hold on to his anger. That's over too. So let me just say to my divorced friends who are here with us today, who are watching this way, I don't know if God was ever angry at you. But if he was at one time, that's over. Because while God hates divorce... He does not hate divorced people. He is not a God who holds on to anger. And that's among the greatest reasons that I praise his holy name. Hold on to that one, okay? But know this, the reason that we have to talk about divorce and marriage is, uh, I think, to be faithful to the text, we have to. And also because the longer that I live with this text, the more that I realize that it is not just divorce that has dishonored God. It is also marriage in the way that we have approached it in the church of Jesus Christ and the way the people of ancient Israel approached it that has dishonored God. Okay, so let me, let me speak. Uh, I, don't, I don't know any Pharisees among us, but if there are some, I don't know any self-righteous people among us, but if there are some, let me just say to you, if you were uh, sitting there patting yourself on the back for not getting divorced and therefore not having dishonored God, when we dig into the marriage stuff next week, you might want to come with a little dose of humility to wash it down with because I think that the text makes it clear that it is both marriage and divorce approached in the way that the church and the historic people of God have approached them that have dishonored God and made him a laughing stock to the rest of the world who does not yet believe in him. I'm going to take it one step further. Stretch with me, okay? 
There is not a chapter and verse for this. This is thus saith the cliff, not thus saith the Lord, so it holds a lot less weight. I'll even go so far as to say to my angry brothers and sisters who look um, at uh, same-sex marriage and want to hit that hard with the baseball bat of truth, that it is not same-sex marriage that has defiled the church in America. It is heterosexual Christian marriage that has not been lived out as God had originally intended, that left people saying, I can't even imagine marriage working for me in the way it's described in the Bible. Can we all, can we all just agree to start in the place of humility, and compassion today. For all the people for whom the fairy tale didn't work out, for all the people who feel trapped today, for all the people who feel like it's over and this is where I am for the rest of my life, can we just start in the place of humility that says, I'm right there with you You're still my brother. You're still my sister. Can we start in the place of compassion that says, I want you to feel the love of God and of your fellow Christ follower today. Can we start there together? Okay. Well, having read the passage, um, there's a lot in there, as you can see, that leaves us uh, struggling, uh, maybe feeling a little bit like there's an elephant standing on our chest. So let me, uh, let, me, let me just give you three, three truths today to hold on to and to chew on over the next week, and that'll be enough. That'll be enough truth about divorce. How's that? The first I've already mentioned, God hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. Um, you cannot find the phrase, the unforgivable sin in the Bible, but people have often treated, uh, within the church, people have often treated Divorce as though it were an unpardonable sin, that it changes your life forever. There are arms of the church of Jesus Christ that say, if you've been divorced, then you can no longer teach in the church. You can no longer hold uh, leadership positions in the church. You can't become a pastor or a missionary in the church. In other words, there are arms of this faith of ours that say, if They say, you can steal, you can rob, you can do all kinds of things. God will forgive all of that and we'll pull you into the family of faith and we'll talk about what a dirty, rotten sinner you used to be, but by the, by the, by the grace of God and to his great glory, he's changed you and you have a whole new future in front of you and we'll turn them into leaders and teachers and pastors in the church. But we have often said, unless you're divorced... In which case, well, nice try. In heaven, God will wash all that away. I'm here to tell you that there are no second class citizens in the kingdom of God on either side of the grave. Redemption is offered to all 
for all of our mistakes, all of our forgivenesses, and for all of our hurts. We believe that, don't we, church? Say amen with me. Good. Uh, There's my notes. Principle number one, then, is that that God uh, hates divorce, but he does not hate divorced people. It is not unforgivable. If you uh, are a divorced person, if you're a person who uh, pursued divorce, it was, it was your act. If you're a person who was unfaithful to your spouse that gave them grounds for choosing divorce, and you feel guilt and shame and sorrow, please understand that there is a holy, loving God who says, I know. There's a Jesus who said, I'll die for that. I'll take all of the punishment for that, and I will wash you clean and white as snow. I'll make you new. And you get one of those second or third or 200th or 300th chances. Know this today, friend, that if you, uh, if you are a divorced person who feels guilty, who feels shame to this day, that all of the accusation that takes place in your heart and mind comes from the devil himself or you. It does not come from the Spirit of God, and it will not come from this church. So shall it ever be. Amen. Satan, that uh, Hebrew word, means the accuser. So whenever you feel accused and it, and it incites shame, makes you want to hide, withdraw, you can know for sure that's from the enemy. Whenever you recognize some wrong in your life, and you feel immediately like, hmm, I should talk to God about that, that's the Holy Spirit, okay? It never comes with the heavy. It never comes with the ugly. It never comes with the hurt. That's how you can discern the difference between those two. So if today you're feeling the shame, you're feeling the dirty, you're feeling the ugly, you're feeling the anger, that's the enemy. You can dismiss it now, and you can rest on this proclamation from God's word that if you've confessed your sins, he is faithful. and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 9. Look it up. Principle number two relative to divorce. God hates divorce because of what it does to individuals. I'm that guy. I'm supposed to, uh, I'm supposed to be a statistic, except that... Uh, God worked out some other things in my life that spared me from much of that. But when you think about this statement that God makes that's so bold and hard for us to read and hard for us to listen to, I, the Lord, hate divorce, it should make us ask the question, why? Because if we allow God to explain himself, we might hear the the pronouncement a little bit different. I think too often it's been read by pastors and by others in a tone that sounds accusatory toward the people who have been divorced. And certainly there is a reading of this passage in which God points at some people who chose divorce in a, in a certain set of circumstances, and he says to them, no. But when the Lord makes this pronouncement, I hate divorce, You can either hear it as, I hate divorce, or you can hear, I hate divorce. Can you feel the difference? I think that in the middle of some stern words from God, 
through the prophet Malachi, when we get to this passage, I think you can hear the voice of God break. He hates divorce, not divorced people. He hates divorce because of what it does to people. It dashes hopes. It, it, it takes their the, the, the most meaningful and well-intentioned dreams and turns them into dust and ashes. It many times sours them on, on, on ever hoping again. And because of what it does to a person who has been divorced, no matter who's guilty, no matter who's at fault, that has a certain splash zone to it, doesn't it? And, and, the, and the other people in their circle, in their, in, their, in their friends and in their family, they find themselves too bearing some of the taste of, of divorce and it doesn't taste good. Let me, let me ask you um, by show of hands, how many of you ever lost a friend or two because some couple friends of yours divorced and none of you knew how to handle it well enough. And so, not only did you not pick between the two, but you didn't know how to respond to either one of them. And your relationship just died and you lost. Yeah. Facebook, you should see the number of hands. How many of you said, well, I lost one because I, I, I sided with somebody? Yeah. Yeah, it's among the reasons that God hates divorce because of what it does to people. It not only pulls apart two who are supposed to be made one, but it pulls apart families and it pulls apart friendships and it pulls apart businesses and it pulls apart neighborhoods and it pulls apart churches. And, and while it dashes that, that kind of fairy tale kind of hope that we all kind of start out with when we're, when we're young and getting married, uh, it's not the fairy tale hope uh, that I think is, is the greatest cost in this whole thing. It's, it's the, the damage that divorce does that causes a person to say, I can never love again. I can never be loved again. I can never enter into a loving relationship with the blessing and the help of God. And so this sentence settles in, I deserve to be punished. I deserve to be alone that crushes hope forever. And I want to tell you today, God hates divorce because it crushes that kind of hope in your life. And I know there are people flipping over to the New Testament to say, but uh, Pastor Jesus and Paul said, I know, and we can talk about that. But Jesus Christ is our living hope, and we sang about him earlier. And living means a hope that goes on and on and on and on. I want to address two things um, about the, the, the business of hope being crushed. The first is this. Um, if, if that version of crushed hope that you're experiencing today is that you feel that, well, you're just going to have to bear a certain punishment for being divorced the rest of your life, um, Jesus took that. All of it for all human sin and brokenness. Jesus took it. All of it for all human sin and brokenness. 
He does not intend, nor does his heavenly Father, to punish you because all of that was laid on Jesus. All of it. Okay? If you feel like, well, I'm not going to use the language of punishment, but I think I'm going to have to be alone, I want to remind you that in the first couple of chapters of the Bible, God looked at his unspoiled creation. And he went, huh, there's something I just didn't quite get right. Because people shouldn't be alone. Alone is not the intent of God. Now, am I saying that God wants you to run out and get remarried? I can't tell you that. But I am going to tell you this. It is not his will for you to be alone, even in a room full of people like this one. The church and all of its rich, hearty friendship and fellowship is to be afforded to every person who asks for it, single, divorced, widowed, scared, too scared to get married. The rich, abiding, hearty friendship and inclusion is for every person, regardless of marital status, you believe it, say amen. Yeah. Here's what it means. You got to reach out to folks who aren't in the same married whatever condition that you are, okay? Nod your heads like this if you mean if you actually intend to do that, okay? Cuz I I don't want to just say it and then us not do it. God hates divorce, but not divorced people. He hates divorce because of what it does to individual people. And then I think to really set this whole uh, text and this whole message um, in in the or to set the message into the whole text that we just read today, you, we got to grapple with this. God hates divorce because of what it does to His people as a whole. Okay, let me unpack that for you. Malachi was not written to the whole world. Malachi's message, the message of that prophet, was spoken to the nation of Israel in antiquity. And uh, as we talked about earlier in uh, studying the book of Malachi, in the Old Testament, the people of God, the, the group of people that, that identified with God as he's my God and, and, and I'm his, his, part of his people, that, that was an exclusive relationship in the Old Testament. God said, I'm going to work this out all throughout history and don't worry, I'll work justice backward in time in eternity, but, but for a while I'm going to choose one group of people. And he told Israel, don't get all proud about this because I chose you not because you're impressive, but because you're the opposite. You're the most stubborn, stiff-necked, failure-prone people that I have ever met. It'll be perfect, the relationship between me and you. It'll be hard, it'll be ugly, it'll be fitful, and I'll just keep loving you. And I will call you back to myself, and I'll, I'll drag you kicking and screaming back to myself on occasion. And over time, it will demonstrate to the whole world how loving I am and how much love I have to give. And they will, they'll see how I treat you, and they'll come running to, to, to us. That Old Testament group, the people of God, was an exclusive group. The good news in the New Testament is that the, the gates of the, of the people of God, of that kingdom, get thrown open to the whole world. A couple years ago this time, you sent Laura and me to Israel on the, the first night. We got there late, late at night, and I slept just a couple of hours, and I got up at 4.30 the next morning because I'd heard this word, Jaffa, and it's the name of the next town just down the coast. 
And I knew that if I went hard and fast, I could get there. And I did. And I wanted to go to Jaffa for a reason. It's because I heard a story in children's Bible quizzing years ago about the day that the gates of the kingdom of the people of God got thrown open to the whole world. And here's the deal. I don't have any Jewish blood that we can find in my family line. And so if the people of God is restricted to the Jews alone, then I don't stand a chance. But in the pre-dawn hours, that precious gift that you gave to my wife and me, I, I hiked my way down the coast and, and up the hill because I saw a big church there and I knew any church that was in Jaffa had to be St. Peter's Church because Peter was, was a key character in the story and I saw a sign, a handwritten sign that said Simon the Tanner's house and I followed it and I went down these little alleys where I thought I'm either going to find the coolest thing or get hit in the head and killed in the dark and, and I came around this corner and I stood and there in, in, in crude handwritten script was this, this, this stone doorway that was clearly thousands of years old, and it said that this Armenian Christian family had preserved here the house of Simon the Tanner, the place where Simon Peter had the vision, where God said to him, don't you call anything unclean that I'm calling clean, and I'm calling everything clean from now on. And I'm sending you to take this message that the people of God is now an inclusive instead of an exclusive term. I'm sending you out into the whole world with that, Peter. I stood before that door. Tears streaming down my face because it's my story. How How the people of God went from being this exclusive to this inclusive group. But it was to that exclusive group that Malachi was written. And God said, we're going, to have a, we're going to have a certain kind of relationship together. It's a covenant relationship, which means permanent. I will forever be your God. You will forever be my people. We'll live in carefully prescribed ways toward one another. And those laws that prescribe the way that we will live protect this relationship. They preserve sanctity. They preserve honor. They preserve dignity. They preserve health. And therefore, they, pr- they preserve the longevity of the relationship. It's these things that will make the relationship healthy forever. And the reason that God, centuries later, said through Malachi to the exclusive people of God, I hate divorce, is because of what divorce had done to that group, to the, the people of God as a whole. Here's what it had done. He said, I gave you two covenant relationships. One was a covenant with me. The other was a covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage is the laboratory in which you get to learn about the covenant love that you and I are supposed to share as God and people. The problem is you keep, bail- you keep, you keep skipping school. You keep dropping out of school. I get you into a marriage I'd let you ride the high of love. And then about the time that this thing gets difficult, somebody says, "Mm, I like the easy part. And when you're just standing on the verge of, of, of having a breakthrough understanding of how holy and passionate and incredible and comforting my love can be, one of you breaks faith. And not only do you have wreckage in your own heart, and not only do you wreck the heart of your spouse, not only do you do damage to your kids, 
but it kind of poisons the well. Let me, let me ask a question. I'll get see through here for a minute, see how many of you are with me. As a little kid, and up until literally the day I met Laura, I said, I will never get married because I saw what divorce looks like, and divorce is so hurtful that being married can't be worth it. Anybody else ever kind of make that? Pre- yeah, yeah, yeah. See, God hates divorce because it poisons the well. It goes beyond the two people who, who got their hearts broken by one another. And it begins to, to poison not only the family's great hope. And listen, if, if the family, if the kids can't get to the place where they trust enough to love, where are they going to find the laboratory for learning about the covenant faithfulness of God? But it also has this, this broader ripple effect among the people of God. Hey, listen, church in America in the 21st century, here's what we've learned. There are as many divorced Christians as there are people who do not share our faith. I want to think that the church has done really well at reaching out to all these brokenhearted folks who've gone through divorce and we've pulled them into church, so it skewed the numbers, but that ain't the way it's happened. It's the people of God who said, we believe in a covenant God, have not been faithful to the covenant vows that they made. And as a result, the world around us looks and says, well, y'all can't even stay married any better than we can. Um, your addiction rate's not a lot different than ours, so on and so forth. Why would we, why would we want all the same uh, horrible problems that you have plus have to be religious on top of it? See, what, the, the, the effects of the church, not just of, of individual Christians getting divorced, but of the church just getting to the place where it just winks and nods and goes, ah, you know, people, people try and they get divorced. And then get vehemently angry about same-sex marriage while we go, eh, about heterosexual marriage done poorly and heterosexual divorce. Do you see why the world around us goes, no, thank you? Yeah. Among the reasons that God hates divorce is because it poisons the people of God in two ways. It, it, it poisons um, our ability to really understand how faithful God is. But, but this, this covenant messed up keeps us from, from understanding this covenant. But it also poisons us so the world around us doesn't come running to us like they were supposed to. It's not the funnest sermon I've ever preached, nor to listen to, huh? See, every divorce that happens in the church of Jesus Christ ends up coaching unfaithfulness among the other members of the body of Christ. So, to address that, let me just say, let's be real careful that we don't point fingers but let's make sure that we learn the lesson too. Every time one of us one goes through divorce, that we remind ourselves this is not the will of God for us, either in marriage or in our relationship with God. Hey, let me ask you something. Is this church as full as it used to be? You can say it. No. 
Are most churches in America as full as they used to be? No. See, um, all of our divorces have taught us you can just break covenants and walk away. And so a lot of people have walked away from Christ and his church too. Hmm. Divorce is the American church's sin. It's the American church's wound. And it's the American church's disease. It's a sin when we, when we choose that. Scriptures, I think, make that clear enough. When somebody else chooses it, it's not our sin, but it becomes our wound because it damages us deeply. But it also becomes our disease because we pass it on. Next week, I'm going to talk about marriage. We're going to talk a little bit about the school of faithfulness that marriage is supposed to be, that that school is not only marital faithfulness, but, but spiritual faithfulness to God and to the church. But before we end today, I think we find ourselves in a place where we really need to receive the grace and the help and the washing of God. I think we find ourselves in a place where we need the comfort of God. I think we find ourselves in the place where we once again need to be assured of the acceptance of God. And that's why we have communion elements set before us today. I told you I did a wedding last weekend traditional vows. Uh, By the way, that's the only kind of vows I do. You want to write some flowery poem? Great. Say it to each other. But if I do your wedding, you're going to say, till death do us part. And it means this. I always give the the Cliff Purcell working man's translation. It means this. I'll stay married to you if it kills me. (laughs) The Lord's Supper, you and I get to eat Because Jesus said, I'll stay married to you if it kills me. God said, I'll hang in here in this relationship with you, bloodied, beaten, bruised, abandoned. If it kills me, I'll hang in with you. If today you would like to have a relationship with a God who will hang in there no matter what, Maybe you're a person whose spouse didn't hang in there with you. Maybe you're a kid whose parents didn't hang in there. And you're worried if there's ever going to be anything durable in your life. I'm telling you, there's a God who won't give up on you. He will not turn his back on you. You can reach his direction. Even if this is your first time reaching his direction today, you can take, you're going to have a little bitty cup of juice. It looks like blood. And you're going to have a little bitty cracker. And we say that it kind of reminds us of the body, the the, the actual flesh and and blood of Jesus. And we eat those things as, as the most elemental way of saying, I want you in me. You know the way digestion works. Before long, we, we won't be able to tell the difference between you and the bread and the wine. You'll be so mixed up together, we can't separate the two of you. Now you're getting the point. How are you going to get that cracker and that wine out of you? You can't. 
How are you going to get that God out of you? You can't. When he comes in, he's coming in to stay. Hear this. He's coming in to stay. For all the levers in your life, he's coming in to stay. If you're a person who has uh, suffered divorce, your fault or not, your choice or not, why don't you receive the body and the blood of Jesus Christ today for cleansing and for the renewal of hope? It is not good for you to be alone. It's never been God's intention. Wouldn't be right for me to teach on these things on Sunday mornings and then say, so um, good luck with your marriages. So for the next, uh, next little while, it'll be, four, it'll be five weeks with a week off of Thanksgiving. But on Wednesdays, starting this week through uh, December 5th, Laura and I are going to be in the fellowship hall right over there, and we're going to invest in our marriage from 6.30 to 7.30. And as many of you as would like to join us, why don't you come do that, okay? Just an hour, 6.30, 7.30. Learn what we can. And then, um, because my wife's really practical, um, she's going to help us um, come up with just one practice, just one action that we'll take each week after we leave the class that'll be an investment in that marriage, okay? Uh, you can come if you're not married, too. Maybe coming would, would be a sign of hope or that you're open to hope. Well, communion teams, why don't you come? I know we're past time and I don't regret it at all today. Bill, who's going to handle our, um, our gluten-free elements? Dwayne and Kathy, why don't you raise your hands? These, these two right here, if you need... If you need um, Gluten-free elements, they'll help you. Whatever else it is that this sacrament means, it means that there's a God who's got his arms open toward you. There's a God who's seeking you. And the scriptures tell us they will find me when they seek me with their whole hearts. So whatever it is that your heart is feeling today, bruised, battered, broken, hopeless, Grateful, pure, sanctified, forgiven, whatever it is that your heart is feeling or full of today, why don't you just take all of that and go run in God's direction and he will meet you. Why don't you take the the bread and the cup and hold them in just a moment. Uh, We'll partake together. In the meantime, if you've got something to say to God, why don't you say it? And if you don't, why don't you listen? Because you might have something to say to you. The love of God is an everlasting love. Feel that word. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was broken for you, preserve you unto, here's that word again, everlasting life. Take and eat this, remembering that Christ died for you. I was reading the Old Testament law the other day. Talked to um, specifically to guys like me. 
You mentioned that if um, somebody was out in the field and killed an animal, it's hunting season, that there's a certain way to take care of all of that, and that among the responsibilities were that uh, dirt be scattered over the blood. Because it said, the animal's life is in the blood. And it shouldn't just be left there like an unholy thing. The life is in the blood. And this symbolizes to us the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you. Take and drink this, remembering that Christ died for you, and be thankful. Would you stand with me? Lord, we asked you for help, and I think you gave it. I was wrestling with that passage, and it was wrestling with me. You said hard things. But I thank you that among the things that you have said to us, is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from every sin. Lord, I have friends listening today who've confessed sin and asked you for forgiveness of that, but their hearts are still broken. Jesus, I believe that your body and blood are to speak to our brokenness too. And I want to ask, if you haven't done so already, would you begin to administer healing to the hurting because we ask in faith and in Jesus' name. Maybe they've never been open to your healing before, thinking they ought to have to bear this today, Lord. Would you push that argument aside and just flood them with your healing love? Help us, Lord, as we uh, try to apply ourselves to the Word again one more time next week. And... um, Learn how to live marriage in a way that honors you and undoes some of the curse that divorce has worked among us. And as many as you inspire to uh, invest in their marriage this week, Laura and I'll do our best to try to lead them, but we're going to need your help with that too and with our marriage. So we ask you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, my friends, I want to offer you the blessing of God on the backside of every hard word of God. Understand this. There is a God who stands there with his arms wide open saying, I love you, I accept you, and I want to draw you to me. So whatever else it is that you've processed today, know that as you head out those doors, you do not go alone. There is a God who's got a hold of you and loves you.